0: Today is August 18, 2020, and this is episode number 21 of Blurred Laws and Life with me, your host, Richard Bush. I want to first welcome the worldwide audience of Blurred Laws and Life. Yes, from comments I've received, I now know that Blurred Laws and Life is being listened to all over the world from as far away as Serbia and Turkey, where currently it is 2.04 a.m. in Serbia and 3.04 a.m. in Turkey. Who knew that when we started this podcast in March of 2020, blurred laws and life would become a cultural and worldwide phenomenon. But we are well on our way my discussion of lyrics verse melody has quite frankly now caused worldwide chaos and rioting in the streets i have received numerous comments to everyone's opinion about whether lyrics or melody are the most important part of a song last week we had on blurred laws in life songwriter record label executive client and friend Andrew Frampton who dropped the mic on us by telling us that the final straw, the nail in the coffin to that argument is that we think of the world as an English-speaking planet but in fact we are not and the majority of the world doesn't speak English but yet enjoys... American songs and English songs songs from the UK and that those who not speak English by definition are not following the lyrics, but rather it is the melody that infiltrates their soul and following Andrew's comments. I received a comment by a blurred laws and life regular Scott Schreer who seconded Andrew's opinion and said it's even deeper than that because when one translates the English lyrics to another language the syllable count is different the rhythm of the words are different so they do not match the English words and vocal melody is very important to a song so that shows even further how the lyrics cannot be the most important part of the song. And it is the melody, the music that is, because even if lyrics are translated, they will not match the English syllable count in that language. And it throws off the entire song lyrically, but yet the melody of the song is the same and the songs still are worldwide hits. My brother um, even reached out to me sending me a text that said to call him because he has a response to Andrew Frampton, a different response, disagreeing with Andrew. And my brother, who is an incredible pianist, said that if words are translated to a foreign language, like Chinese, he said, and when translated, If the lyrics still are powerful and resonate, then it just underscores the power of the lyrics and how important the lyrics are to a song. So now apparently the battle lines have been drawn. This lyrics versus melody debate, which I thought when I first raised it was an interesting, fun debate has sparked worldwide outrage. There may end up being war over this. I hope this doesn't spark a world war, but we do know that blurred laws and life has gone global, that we have listeners across the world as far away as Turkey and Serbia. And we know that tensions are running high on this melody verse lyrics debate. And we also know that World War I was started by the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand by Serbian nationalists. Nobody cared about the Archduke Ferdinand, but it started World War I. And we know we have listeners as far away as Serbia and Turkey. So is history about to repeat itself? Will the Serbians who believe in melody or lyrics start World War III over this melody verse lyrics debate, and we know if that does happen, blurred laws in life will be blamed. I don't want that on my conscience. Please, everyone, for the love of God, stay calm. So there was a very interesting case in the news this week involving Lizzo's smash hit, Truth Hurts, that spent weeks um, at number one and has had hundreds of millions of streams on the various streaming services. It also won several Grammy Awards, and Lizzo was nominated for other Grammy Awards for her song, Truth Hurts. After Truth Hurts was released, several songwriters registered themselves as writers of Truth Hurts with performing rights organizations, even though they were not listed on the credits of Truth Hurts. And Lizzo filed a lawsuit in federal court asking the court to declare that those writers were in fact not writers on truth hurts and have no ownership in truth hurts and in fact waived any of their claims with respect to ownership of truth hurts in response those songwriters filed a counterclaim asking the court to declare that they in fact are owners copyright owners, of the song Truth Hurts. Now, the background facts are quite interesting. These songwriters allege that Lizzo and they all collaborated on a demo track that they finalized and was titled Healthy. They further allege that Lizzo then independently went and created the song Truth Hurts by copying various musical elements of that finalized demo track, Healthy. They claim that Lizzo left them off the credits of Truth Hurts, even though Lizzo copied, allegedly, elements of Healthy in creating Truth Hurts, and that they should be declared partial owners of the song Truth Hurts as a result. Very interesting case. One thing they did not allege in their complaint is that Truth Hurts infringes the demo track that they created healthy. And there is a specific reason why I believe the lawyers did not make that claim. The reason that the lawyers did not make that claim is that under established copyright law, joint owners of one work cannot sue another owner for copyright infringement of infringing a work that he or she is part owner of. So since they allege that Lizzo worked on and was a co-writer of the song Healthy that supposedly is copied in Truth Hurts, they did not allege a claim for copyright infringement. Instead, they alleged or they asked the court to declare that they, the songwriters, are in fact co-owners of Lizzo's song, Truth Hurts. Lizzo moved to dismiss that claim and asserted that as a matter of law, a joint author of one copyrightable work does not automatically gain ownership of a derivative work in which the joint author had no hand in creating. So the argument was that since Lizzo created Truth Hurts on her own, even if it did contain elements of healthy, those authors, the counterclaim plaintiffs, did not have ownership as a matter of law in Truth hurts. In response, the counterclaim plaintiffs asserted that, citing another case, that where the first work was a work in progress, the joint authors do become owners when the final work is completed. And they asserted, citing a specific case from the Ninth Circuit, that here, healthy was a work in progress that ultimately resulted in truth hurts, and therefore they should have ownership in truth hurts along with Lizzo. The court disagreed. And the court citing and relying on the allegations of the actual complaint filed by the attorneys for these songwriters said that they plead that healthy was in fact a completed work, that they plead that specifically. And that Truth Hurts, Lizzo's song, was then created independently, albeit through alleged copying of elements of the original track, healthy. Therefore, based on those pleadings, based upon the complaint in the action, Healthy was not a work in progress. The case that the counterclaim plaintiffs relied on was therefore inapplicable. And under Ninth Circuit law, the plaintiffs do not have ownership in Truth Hurts simply because it may have copied elements of Healthy and as a result, dismissed that claim. Interestingly, the counterclaim plaintiffs asked the court to allow them to amend their complaint to allege that in fact healthy was a work in process that it was not completed and that truth hurts was the ultimate work that was completed through that process the court after analyzing various Ninth Circuit law concluded that while that allegation would be completely contrary to the original pleading in the complaint that is allowable under one decision or two decisions of the Ninth Circuit, although there were conflicting decisions in that regard. But the judge said, the court said that out of abundance of caution, he would allow them to amend the complaint, but noted that the original allegations still could be used to impact the defendant's or the counterclaim plaintiff's credibility, and further noted that such allegations would be in direct conflict with specific allegations in the original complaint. So it's a very interesting case. It is not over. It's going to continue on if they amend the complaint. And this type of case just shows the intricacies of copyright law and really how difficult it is to sustain a copyright infringement claim and to win. Last week, I also discussed one of my cases, two of my cases that I have recently filed, and I received a few comments about what I said in my podcast about those cases and some questions. And as a result, I felt the need to explain further and to perhaps clarify a bit. So I mentioned last week that we recently filed on behalf of Roundhill Music, a lawsuit against a company by the name of TuneCore, and their parent company believe. And in that case, we allege that TuneCore and their parent company believe as aggregators of music uh, supplied various sound recordings and the underlying compositions to iTunes and others without, allegedly, without obtaining the necessary mechanical licenses for the underlying composition and therefore committed copyright infringement. I noted that the case was similar to the case that we have filed on behalf of 8 Mile Style um, against Spotify for copyright infringement. And so the question that I was asked was, why is it that TuneCore is potentially on the hook for copyright infringement as the company that supplied the songs and the underlying compositions to the iTunes of the world, whereas Spotify as the final distributor Of the music are alleged to have committed copyright in that case and the answer lies in the fact that there are various forms of copyright infringement so one can be liable for three different types of copyright infringement one is direct copyright infringement where you are actually violating one of the six exclusive rights of a copyright owner which includes the right to manufacture, reproduce, and distribute music, which it is alleged in these lawsuits that both TuneCore and um, Spotify are liable for violating one of the exclusive rights, one or more of the exclusive rights, by allegedly reproducing and distributing the music. But also, there is liability for what is called contributory copyright infringement and vicarious copyright infringement. So what are those? Contributory copyright infringement exists where one materially contributes to the direct copyright infringement of another. So for example, in the TuneCore case, it is alleged that TuneCore and Believe materially contributed to the alleged direct infringement of the underlying musical compositions by iTunes and the iTunes of the world. It is also alleged that TuneCore and and Believe committed what is called vicarious copyright infringement. And vicarious copyright infringement exists where one has has the right and ability to supervise the infringing conduct of another and has a financial interest in the infringement but fails to supervise or stop that copyright infringement. And again, it is alleged in this case that or in the TuneCore case that TuneCore and Believe are allegedly liable for that vicarious copyright infringement. So it's not just direct copyright infringement that exists in many of these cases, it is what is known as contributory copyright infringement and vicarious copyright infringement. So I just wanted to clarify that for all of you out there in Blur laws and lifeland who are getting a JD now in uh, copyright infringement and intellectual property law Through your listening on a weekly basis of Blurred Laws and Life. On today's episode of Blurred Laws and Life, I have my guest, Matt Goss. Matt was a teen idol in the UK in the late 80s and early 90s as part of the boy band Bros along with his brother Luke. They sold millions of records. And for the past 10 years Matt has been a headliner in Las Vegas first at the Palms Hotel then at Caesars and now at the Mirage. I first met Matt seven or eight years ago when I helped get his album, Life You Imagine, made. It has some beautiful songs in it, and if you are unaware of it, you should listen to it. And over the course of the last seven or eight years, Matt and I have become very close friends. I also um, have represented Matt in several different matters. I think you will really enjoy Matt. He is a truly wonderful individual, great experience terrific artist, fantastic performer. I can't wait for you to hear about Matt's life and career and his perspective on being a teen idol and now having one of the top shows in Las Vegas. So without further ado, here is Matt Goss. with me on the podcast my good friend and client Matt Goss hey Matt how are you
1: how are you my brother
0: doing great man so in the introduction I kind of went over your career you know you've been headlining in Vegas for the last 10 years which has been incredible you and your brother were the subject of an award-winning documentary detailing your life and early career and what happened after that um, which details and describes your your life as part of a as a teenager with the group bros and selling millions of records. And I wanna get into all of that in this podcast because with your experience and um, the things you've had, your ups and downs, it's been an incredible career and an incredible life that I know the audience will be fascinated by. But before we do that, one of the things that has really captured the imagination of the world is this lyrics versus melody debate that you were part of a week or two ago. And if you recall, Matt, a couple of years ago, I wrote the lyrics to one of the greatest songs you've ever created.
1: <laughs> your Do you remember modesty, that? Your modesty, Richard, literally knows no bounds. I mean, I think you just said one of the greatest songs ever written. I think that... <laughs> if, I could, if I could put some levity to your introduction, first of all, thank you for, for the introduction. But we, there was an, actually a moment when Richard, on a very rare occasion... I said, yeah, I'm, I've had a pretty crappy day. Let's have a glass of wine, catch up, and uh, I wanted to cheer my buddy up. You know, yeah, as Richard said, he's you know is my lawyer, and I and I feel grateful genuinely, not just saying this, but it's nice to be able to say publicly that that you you, you can call your you know one of the best lawyers on the planet your your brother. Um, but it was nice to be able to be there for him one day, and just to be like. Cheer him up and stuff. And one of the, what happened was Richard said, "Look, this is what I want." I said, "What do you want?" And I didn't know Richard. If anybody knows Richard personally, you never know what that means when he says, "This is what I want." Anyway, this particular, "This is what I want," was that he wanted to write a lyric, but he wanted me to play with my my guitar and create the most beautiful sounding ballad with whatever lyrics Richard came
0: up with. I, what I said was, "I wanted, I wanted you to create because you were sitting in your place in L.A." you were living in LA at the time and you had your guitar and I came over and I said, I wanted to think of the most disgusting lyric I could come up with yeah. and you sing the most beautiful ballad ever to it. Which
1: gives people an insight of how warped you are at times when in the courtroom is laser focused. But this is, he wanted to come up with the filthiest lyric, and <laughs> for me to try and make it into a, beautiful ballad. Yes. In which we then proceeded. And we did. In which we did. And then we called a, at least 10 of our friends and you, we were crying with laughter. And it was just one of those moments where it was just such a connected thing. It was, we were literally crying with laughter. I, we can never, ever uh, tell people the lyric because it was so absurdly um, filthy. And it came out of Richard's mind. And Richard actually was going to sue me because he said, look, he felt that the lyrics was a massive part of the song. Even though I'd spent an hour to come up with this murdy. I said to him, I'll tell you what, Richard. I mean, you know what I said to you. I gave you. This is the
0: kind of guy you are. Let me just interrupt you because this is the kind of guy you are, Matt. And I want the world to know this. I said I should get 50% of the song. You said, Richard, I'll give you 100% of the song. That's yeah. the kind of gracious man so you are. Man
1: still you are. to say, currently, <laughs> the sole owner of this song, which will never be licensed which will never be heard, <laughs> but, it's, but you own 100% of the rights to it. Lyric, melody, master, everything. But the, the, the thing is, ladies and gents, Richard G said, I promise you, I won't because he videoed me singing the song, and I was like, look, please don't ever show him because it's just not, I don't, is just for you, he's like, I promise you. Three hours later, he's on a transatlantic flight somewhere going, hey, Matt, I'm seeing here to the most interesting person, they're amazing, and I'll just show them your video. I'm like, bro, he promised me, he yeah, but they're so interesting, and I'm like, anyway, so instant karma, ladies and gents, he went to the bathroom and dropped his phone on the plane down the bathroom into the toilet, which is forever, probably across uh, Utah or some state of America, it uh, landed in the mud somewhere, but, which is where it should be.
0: Yes, it will never be. that video will never be seen, the song will never be heard, but it lives in our mind. And I kind of want to start at the beginning. I mean, like I said a moment ago, you were the subject, you and your brother were the subject of an award-winning documentary just recently, and you have incredible things going on in your career. But, you know, you still are a household name in the UK, and that's in large measure due to this incredible success you had as a teenager with this boy, band, Bros. You sold millions of records. For For those in the United States that may not be so familiar, what are some of the names of the most successful titles of those bros albums?
1: The, well, the most, probably the most immediately known songs would be When Will I Be Famous, "Chop the Boy, uh, Nothing, uh, Cat Amongst the Pigeons. You know, there were, I was, it was safe to say on most of the world that they were household songs and name, recognizable songs. Um, it, actually, the first album went on to be the most successful debut album in the history of our record company and it was it was an extraordinary thing going around the world and and just really it was uh it was one of those moments where you know just being born from humble beginnings and going to australia for example and we didn't even know if anybody would know who we were and when we landed at sydney airport there were 10,000 people at the airport and it was just an incredible moment it was like that in japan france everywhere we went it was incredible it was the most incredible experience obviously um, it wasn't just all, or ups. It was, there was a lot of extreme contrast to the success.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because I don't mean to interrupt you, but what I'd like to know from you is what were the biggest challenges? What did you, as a teenager, being thrust into the limelight and into the music business without knowing the legal, you know, the legal terms, the how to negotiate a contract, those types of things, and that's all documented in the in the Documentary about financial issues that arose and how when bros broke up, there wasn't much money and, and all that. What was, tell us what, what what the challenges were of being, you know, it, thrust in the limelight like that.
1: I think being thrust into the limelight was the fun part. I think learning very quickly that there was a business attached to and the necessity of trying to find somebody that actually protects your um, artistry and your. Potential legacy and your finances—that's the challenge in the music industry. I mean, you literally are swimming with sharks, and I think I've learned that the art is to to make sure your your teeth are sharp and sharp enough to make sure people know you have a bite, but not have to use it. And I think that when you're a kid and you're 17, 18 years old, and somebody says to you, "You know, if we make a million bucks, you take 80 percent, we take 20 percent," but the reality is. Um, that sounds good, but the reality is, in the music business, if you put got a big show like we did, we're the youngest, we're still the youngest um, band in history, music history, to headline Wembley Stadium uh, to 77,000 people. And we played that venue and it cost a million bucks to put on, but then we realized it made a million. So, therefore, we were in debt to our management for 200,000 because we simply broke even on a global show. Now, what should have happened was, is we should have collectively made a decision as a team that said, now we are a stadium band. But instead, what happened is, our managers informed us that we were, in fact, in debt to them because the show had broken even. And uh, those, are, I think that was a mistake. Um, and it was devastating because we made, we did make millions upon millions of, uh, of dollars, but we also had to spend millions because we had 50 plus people with us traveling because we were going on a seven month world tour and um, I just feel like you know, at that age there's no way you can understand the intricacies of business and we, we learned the hard way. We lost absolute, we lost millions and millions of dollars um, then began the journey. That was the where you have to make a decision. Do you want to be famous or do you want to actually go on this journey uh, that involves music and having to be careful? Um,
0: If you knew then what you know now, what would you have done differently?
1: um, I think one of the things that you will really truly understand um, is that we had the same lawyer as our manager. That Immediately, anyone listening, any artist listening that is immediately a conflict of interest there's no way that you can have a, a non biased approach to business if you're if you're using the same lawyer as your manager. you have to separate that and there's a term for that what's the term for that
0: conflict of interest is the right is the right word
1: so we didn't know that I mean we just felt that everything was come by eye, everyone was on the same page, everyone was looking out for you and then you start to realize you know that it's quite a treacherous place and but we You know, people might also need to understand that you're, you know, you you travel to Australia, it takes you, you know, 18 hours to get there. It takes, you know, you get there, you have 30 interviews to do. The next day, you have 30 more interviews. Then you have a show to do in the evening, and after that, meet and greet. There is no physical way, like logical way, in, in any realistic sense. That you are going to be able to keep an eye on all the moving parts on a level of business, you have to be able to trust somebody. So that's why good management is worth its weight in gold. Because when you are really a high-functioning band on your touring, and you have to rely on good lawyers. You have to rely on good management, that everybody's on the same page, moving, and, moving towards the same direction of loyalty and commitment to each other. And that was the biggest downfall. I mean, I think that's when we realised that. We didn't even know, this may sound so naive, but back then we didn't even know what betrayal was. I mean, we learned what betrayal was, but we didn't learn, we, we had to learn on the move, on the go, on stage. We had to learn the workings of the bottom line and making sure that we were, that we found our way out of that, you know, teen idol status into a career that actually would sustain our lives for the next 30, 40, 50 years. So. It's definitely something that was documented, as you say, in our movie after the screening stops. Um, It's definitely something that was challenging, but at the same time, I wouldn't change anything because I'm here. I'm still a contender. I'm still doing things that I could only dream of. But it's definitely something that I would like to get more into of how to educate and warn people of the traps within the industry.
0: So how many albums did Bros release at the time?
1: We released three albums. Um, We sold, I think, around 16 million albums. So, you know, it it was a bona fide success, you know.
0: And why did you guys break up after those three albums?
1: I think my brother had had enough of the press. I mean, we couldn't move. We had 500 people outside our house every day. I remember vividly, we went in, I believe, at, at number 10. No, number nine. So we went in at number nine in the charts and the press said, is this the end of broth? And I remember dreaming of a top 10 record. But they were saying, is this the end of us? Because we'd only gone in at number nine and not gone into the top three. or top, you know. And my brother just had enough. And one day I got a phone call and he just said, I'm done. I, I, I want to go and explore other avenues and not be so beholden to worrying about what the press are going to say about us one day from the next. And in the middle of everything, our sister was killed by a drunk driver. So we had to also navigate these extreme feelings of grief and pain while we were on stage trying to happen happen to be the, quote, happiest days of our life. So um, it really was one of those moments where we had to navigate all kinds of things, grief, um, joy... Um, the guilt of feeling happy during those times. And anyone that's been through loss listening to this will tell you that there is a slight guilt attached to feeling happy when you've, you know, in between the moments of sadness. It's, it's, a, it's a, a puzzle. And we had to do it in front of the public and, and the world. It was, it was extremely, extremely challenging at times.
0: And how did you feel when when your brother said he didn't want to continue with the group? Were you stunned? Were you upset? Did you understand? Anybody anybody
1: listening that's lost their job, um, that's how I feel. So I lost my job. It was, uh, it was it was shocking. Yeah, it was. I remember just you know sitting against the wall, sliding down, sitting on the floor, and go, wow. Now what? You know, I mean, I knew that I was always going to be an artist, and I knew that I was going to be okay deep down, but. It was a very scary phone call, it was, uh, even though she was coming from your brother, but you can't make your brother stay in a band. I mean, Luke was the drummer, and, and we both were very, very famous individuals in our own rights within the band, and um, he quit, so you can't make somebody rejoin And, and I remember when, uh, at the time, I believe we had a number one album in Japan, which which we never went to promote or anything. We were number one in Japan when he left the band.
0: Wow. Did you understand at the time the issues, for example, how important keeping ownership, songwriting, publishing, um, owning the compositions were? Did anybody teach you about that Um, early on? Did you understand those concepts?
1: absolutely not. Absolutely not. You think if you're in a studio and you're contributing, um, it all comes back to trust, Richard. It all comes back to trust and decency. And um, integrity. And when you're contributing in a studio, and you hear the words "keep singing, yeah, keep singing," quote unquote, um, you think you're going to be compensated for that. And it turned out that that was not the case. You know, they kept at the shin. Um, the contract was everything was lopsided. Everything was in house. There was no concern about our future or our family's future. So we really genuinely had to to take hold. In the second or third album, we we had to really try and take hold. But even I remember when I wrote a song called Sister with my brother and and Nicky Graham actually was the producer as well and came up with a piano thing. I'd actually been tinkling around with a piano line and then Nicky took the piano line and we wrote a song called Sister. And to give you an idea, my brother got 20%, 25%. I got 25%. And Nicky Graham got 50%. Um, it really now, I would know it would be 33 and a third. But it's that was that was a good part of the story. At least we got some publishing. But um, yeah, I mean, it was the integrity, I don't think, I think, it, and the moral compass was definitely
0: not in place. It's it's a warning for young artists and young songwriters to always make sure they have the right representation, the right management, the right lawyers, all of that, because it's so easy to get taken advantage of in this industry. It really sounds like a cautionary tale, Matt. really sounds like something that if you could go back and do it over again, you you would do differently.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I had the chance to do things different, Richard, I would make sure that I had my own council, my own accountant, my own, uh, even in regards to my own management, my day-to-day manager would, would also keep an eye on everything. And uh, there would be so many things. I think that that music has been truly devalued to the point of almost non-existence in regards to monetizing music. People have this kind of strange perception that music is, you know, happens for free. You know, and I know that making music is extremely expensive. And if you want to use strings, or if you want to use, you know, certain you know, live instruments, it, it, everything costs money. And to record in the right place, the percentages that go to the artists now on some of the massive platforms like Spotify and YouTube and stuff—I mean, it's so so lopsided. And I hope one day that we can find a way to actually educate the general public about. Uh, the necessity to save music and to understand that it takes tremendous guts to go into the entertainment business. And if you have the guts to go into the music business and prevail and write hit music, hit records and hit songs, I think that you need to be compensated. It's no different to a lawyer or a doctor or secretary or whatever you do for a living. There's no Difference whatsoever, but it's just the revenue streams have become so um, thin, almost to the point of transparency. When you have, there's no debt to the income that you can actually gain. So therefore, you rely solely on live, you know, going and playing live, which also costs money. And it's really, really, I think the music industry for this for artists is taking a real batter in, um, Because if you want to use a Picasso painting. It's, to represent your company then the license on that is going to be extraordinary but music just gets played and streamed and for some reason it's become the new normal and it's, it's heartbreaking to see what's happened to my industry uh, and I am all in favor of artists hopefully one day taking the power back a little bit more and saying there should be more respect and more acknowledgement of the art that ultimately becomes a tapestry
0: of life. That's really well said. Um, You know, Matt, um, I was um, lucky enough to be in the UK when you and your brother did your reunion a couple of years ago and played to a sold-out O2 arena. What was that like coming back and and seeing the fans embrace the two of you like you had never left? Well, you
1: know, it's so clear that the fans have allowed me... And on that show, me and my brother to be in control of our lives. Like they've allowed us. When they come, they are the reason that I'm able to maneuver in this industry because I don't have to ask permission to play live because they always turn up. So whenever any of my friends turn up to my shows or Ross shows, they are literally giving us the power back to. Decide where we want to play, how many people we want to play. They are the sole reason um, because that's how powerful live music has become for artists. And, you know, it doesn't depend upon did you just have a hit record. It depends upon do they want to come and hear you play and sing live? And the answer has been yes. They have continuously, over 30 years, come to see me live, come to see Bruce. and they really, really empower me as an artist and as a man. It's not just ticket sales anymore. It's far more than that for a lot of artists. When fans turn up, you are effectively giving us the power um, to do what we, we had the guts to, to do when we were little kids and turn it into an actual career. So thank you, thank you, thank you to the fans that always turning up to see me live.
0: And speaking of that, you've had a show in Las Vegas for the last decade. I've been to your show many times and it was incredible. It's, it's the best show in Las Vegas. It really is. Um, it's two hours of just happy vibes and good times and your fans from the UK come to see you and it's an amazing thing. And, you know, now that we've been in this pandemic and shows are stopped, what? What's it like not having that show every week and several times a week? And, and what's next for Matt Goss?
1: I mean, thank you for the compliment. I mean, my show in Las Vegas, I've never learned more anywhere than I have in Vegas. I've played stadiums, i played festivals, i played clubs, I've played, you know, arenas. But I've learned so much in Las Vegas because you see the lights of their eyes and, and you have to burn your ego at the door because people two-thirds of the room Will know you, but one third of the room will just read a review and say, right, entertainment. And you really do have to accept that that's okay if you want to have success in Vegas, because you don't go on stage and go, hey, look how amazing I am. You want to go on stage and go, hey, look, I want to entertain you and I want to transport you to another place, so you don't think about your bills, your worries. I just want to be the maker of memories, you know. And I think Vegas just taught me so much about composure, about how you can take your time when you're speaking to an audience. It's also also about undressing your soul to, to an audience. Otherwise, there's no way they're going to undress their soul and relax and, and feel like that it's a mutual experience. So I have learned so much about Vegas. So I would imagine that I will continue my residency uh, on a strip where I don't know yet. I have uh, talked to a couple of properties, but I would imagine that will continue. Um, when we come out of this COVID situation, but I'm also looking at—I've got an action agent in the UK, and I've been offered a, or some, I've been offered a two-year contract on a TV show. Uh, I'm currently talking about making a, a movie, documentary about my time in Vegas and about uh, the UK. My next, my next move. Um, I've also really happy to say that I've been making music, and I've put my commercial head back on. Where I can actually say that i I believe I've written a couple of number one records, and I want to get back to commercial radio. it's it's exciting to me. So there's there's a lot going on, and I'm i excited. I've, I've been so busy. I've raised some money for, um, the, you know, the healthcare workers in the UK. We help, help raise enough money to feed 40,000 meals. I give 40,000 meals. So I've been busy during this time, but but we're philanthropic stuff and also now, much
0: more creative endeavors. Well, well, that's incredible about the charity work, and I can tell you that having been to your show several times, like I said in Las Vegas, people are happy. They are just, they love it. And you come out and you shake everyone's hand in the audience, and and they, it's a very personal show, and and I know it means a lot to you. So I'm happy that will continue after this pandemic is Thank over, you for and. It. And you know, that you and I kind of worked on an album. Um, I got one of my friends, clients to help with it, the Life You Imagine album, which has such incredible music on it. Um, some of the, I mean, it's just beautiful music. And, and I know that you have, you know, you have more of it in you.
1: Yeah, I mean, thank you, man. I mean, that was one of the best. You know, I worked with Wrong Fair, and we, we wrote, I mean, I wrote an album called Life You Imagine, and with Armand just and yourself, I mean, just. It was an amazing experience for me, and I was um, songs like Mustang that I'm really proud of, and the music on that record I'm super proud of, and some of the writing I'm really proud of as well. I do songs that will live for a long time, but it's exciting to actually want to continue to create. And I spoke to an amazing human being today, and uh, who's a legend in the UK, Steve Sidwell, and. Um, we're going to be working together, and it's just, you know, it's amazing where the voice can take you. And as long as you have a true love for music and writing songs, it will always find its way. It'll always find, you'll always find your way um, to another destination. And and I think that um, that's really what it's about. It's not about being famous. It's not about, you know, the money. It's about the journey, and it's about where the voice can take you. I sung for the Queen. I've had lunch with Princess Diana. I've played at the Rolling Stones, played at Madison Square Garden, Carnegie Hall. the Youngest, you know, man in history to headline Wembley Stadium. Um, I everything you know, a few years ago, sang for Joe Biden. Um, I have uh, a, have at the Kennedy Center, and you know, it's just the memories continue. It's you, you really have to be prepared to go on a journey, rather than chase fame or money, and hopefully. And I mean, same to me. you've you been one of the cornerstones in my life, not just as, as, a, as my lawyer, but as a friend. And there's, a, there's something very profound about the loyalty that you bring to my life. And that's why I enjoy talking to you, and I hope we do more of these. But, you know, you really are. A, you are a true testament of what a lawyer that cares about music and artists, it's not fake, it's not about money for you, about justice and what's right. And I've, for the people listening, I have never seen anything like when Richard feels like something is not morally correct, he really, really finds uh, it, uh, it's, it's like alarming to the system. So you're an amazing, amazing friend, but you, you really, it's not phony. You're, you really do care about injustice within the music industry. What you did to the Marvin Gaye family and other, other artists is, is, is because of who you are.
0: Well, thank you, Matt. I mean, I can't even say what that means to hear you say that. Um, you know, I feel the same about you. You're you're a great guy. We've become great friends. And we've just scratched the surface on you and your career and your life. And I'd love to have you back on so we can just talk about the things that you're doing and other topics and things that are going on in the world because you have a great perspective on all of that. So thank you very much for being a part of Blurred Laws in Life.
1: Thank you, man. We should do this more often. And, and if, again, like. If the fans have any questions or people have any questions about, you know, I'm happy to jump on and, and give my perspective whenever you want. I'm, we're brothers for life. And again, you, know, you really are a true, a true gentleman. And I've seen your red face uh, when things are, things are just not morally correct. And, you know, you really are uh, the real deal. And I love you, man.
0: Love you too, man. Thank you for being on the show.
1: All right,